Chapter Three, Volume One of Celebrated Crimes, Volume Two, The Massacres of the South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Celebrated Crimes, Volume Two, The Massacres of the South, by Alexander Dumas, Chapter Three, Part One such crimes of which we have only described a few inspired horror in the breasts of those who were neither maddened by fanaticism nor devoured by the desire of vengeance one of these a protestant baron d'agliers without stopping to consider what means he had at his command or what measures were the best to take to accomplish his object resolved to devote his life to the pacification of the Cévennes. the first thing to be considered was that if the commissards were ever entirely destroyed by means of catholic troops directed by de Verville, de julien and de montreval the protestants and especially the protestant nobles who had never borne arms would be regarded as cowards who had been prevented by fear of death or persecution from openly taking the part of the huguenots he was therefore convinced that the only course to pursue was to get his co-religionists to put an end to the struggle themselves as the one way of pleasing his majesty and of showing him how groundless were the suspicions roused in the minds of men by the catholic clergy this plan presented especially to baron d'agliers two apparently insurmountable difficulties for it could only be carried out by inducing the king to relax his rigorous measures and by inducing the commissards to submit now the baron had no connection with the court and was not personally acquainted with a single huguenot chief the first thing necessary to enable the baron to begin his efforts was a passport for paris and he felt sure that as he was a protestant neither monsieur de baville nor monsieur de montrevel would give him one a lucky accident however relieved his embarrassment and strengthened his resolution for he thought he saw in this accident the hand of providence baron d'agliers found one day at the house of a friend a monsieur de perrette a colonel in the king's army and who afterwards became major-general but who at the time we are speaking of was commandant at Uze. he was of a very impulsive disposition and so zealous in matters relating to the catholic religion and in the service of the king that he never could find himself in the presence of a protestant without expressing his indignation at those who had taken up arms against their prince and also those who without taking up arms encouraged the rebels in their designs monsieur d'agliers understood that an allusion was meant to himself and he resolved to take advantage of it so the next day he paid a visit to monsieur de perrette and instead of demanding satisfaction as the latter quite expected for the rudeness of his remark on the previous day he professed himself very much obliged for what he had said which had made such a deep impression on him that he had made up his mind to give proof of his zeal and loyalty by going to paris and petitioning the king for a position at court de parat charmed with what he had heard and enchanted with this convert embraced d'agliers and gave him says the chronicler his blessing and with the blessing a passport and wished him all the success that a father could wish for his son d'agliers had now attained his object and furnished with the lucky safe conduct he set out for paris without having communicated his intentions to any one not even to his mother on reaching paris 
he put up at a friend's house and drew up a statement of his plan. It was very short and very clear. The undersigned has the honor to point out humbly to his majesty that the severities and the persecutions which have been employed by some of the village priests have caused many people in the country districts to take up arms, and that the suspicions which new converts excited have driven a great many of them to join the insurgents. In taking this step, they were also impelled by the desire to avoid imprisonment or removal from their homes, which were the remedies chosen to keep them in the old faith. This being the case, he thinks that the best means of putting an end to this state of things would be to take measures exactly the contrary of those which produced it, such as putting an end to the persecutions and permitting a certain number of those of the reformed religion to bear arms, that they might go to the rebels and tell them that far from approving of their actions, the Protestants, as a whole, wish to bring them back to the right way by setting them a good example, or to fight against them in order to show the king in France, at the risk of their lives, that they disapproved of the conduct of their co-religionists, and that the priests had been in the wrong in writing to the court that all those of the reformed religion were in favor of revolt. Dagliers hoped that the court would adopt this plan, for if they did, one of two things must happen. Either the commissards, by refusing to accept the terms offered to them, would make themselves odious to their brethren, for Dagliers intended to take with him on his mission of persuasion only men of high reputation among the reformers, who would be repelled by the commissards if they refused to submit, or else, by laying down their arms and submitting, they would restore peace to the south of France, obtain liberty of worship, set free their brethren from the prisons and galleys, and come to the help of the king in his war against the allied powers, by supplying him in a moment with a large body of disciplined troops, ready to take the field against his enemies, for not only would the commissards, if they were supplied with officers, be available for this purpose, but also those troops which were at the moment employed in hunting down the commissards would be set free for this important duty. This proposition was so clear, and promised to produce such useful results, that although the prejudice against the reformers was very strong, Baron d'Agliers found supporters who were at once intelligent and genuine in the Duc de Chevreuse and the Duc de Montfort, his son. These two gentlemen brought about a meeting between the Baron and Camillard, and the latter presented him to the Marechal de Villars, to whom he showed his petition, begging him to bring it to the notice of the king. But Monsieur de Villiers, who was well acquainted with the obstinacy of Louis, who, as Baron de Pequen says, quote, only saw the reformers through the spectacles of Madame de Maintenon, told Dagliers that the last thing he should do would be to give the king any hint of his plans, unless he wished to see them come to nothing. On the contrary, he advised him to go at once to Lyon and wait there for him, Monsieur de Villiers, for he would probably be passing through that town in a few days, being almost certain to be appointed governor of Languedoc in place of Monsieur de Montrevel, who had fallen under the king's displeasure and was about to be recalled. In the course of the three interviews which Dagliers had had with Monsieur de Villiers, he had become convinced that de Villiers was a man capable of understanding his object. He therefore followed his advice, as he believed his knowledge of the king to be correct, and left Paris for Lyon. The recall of Monsieur de Montrevel had been brought about in the following manner. 
Monsieur de Montrevel, having just come to Uze, learned that Cavalier and his troops were in the neighborhood of saint chatte He immediately sent Monsieur de la Jonquière, with six hundred picked marines and some companies of dragoons from the regiment of saint Sernin. But half an hour later, it having occurred to him that these forces were not sufficient, he ordered Monsieur de Foix, lieutenant of the dragoons of Fimarcon, to join Monsieur de la Jonquière at saint chatte with a hundred soldiers of his regiment, and to remain with him if he were wanted, if not, to return the same night. Monsieur de Foix gave the necessary orders, chose a hundred of his bravest men, put himself at their head, and joined Monsieur de la Jonquière, showing him his orders, but the latter, confiding in the courage of his soldiers and unwilling to share with any one the glory of a victory of which he felt assured, not only sent away Monsieur de Foix, but begged him to go back to Uze, declaring to him that he had enough troops to fight and conquer all the commissards whom he might encounter. Consequently, the hundred dragoons whom the lieutenant had brought with him were quite useless at St. Chatte, while, on the contrary, they might be very necessary somewhere else. Monsieur de Foix did not consider that it was his duty to insist on remaining under these circumstances, and returned to Uze while Monsieur de la Jonquière continued his route in order to pass the night at Moussac. Cavalier left the town by one gate just as Monsieur de la Jonquière entered at the other. The wishes of the young Catholic commander were thus in a fair way to be fulfilled, for in all probability he would come up with his enemy the next day. As the village was inhabited for the most part by new converts, the night instead of being spent in repose was devoted to pillage. The next day the Catholic troops reached Moussac, which they found deserted, so they went on to Las Cours de Gravière, a little village belonging to the barony of Boucaron, which Monsieur de la Jonquière gave up to pillage, and where he had four Protestants shot, a man, a woman, and two young girls. He then resumed his route. As it had rained, he soon came on the trail of the commissards, the terrible game which he was hunting down. For three hours he occupied himself in this pursuit, marching at the head of his troops, lest someone else, less careful than he, should make some mistake, when, suddenly raising his eyes, he perceived the commissards on a small eminence, called Le Devoir de Merognargues. This was the spot they had chosen to await attack in, being eager for the approaching combat. As soon as Cavalier saw the royals advancing, he ordered his men, according to custom, to offer up prayers to God and when these were finished he disposed his troops for battle. His plan was to take up position with the greater part of his men on the other side of a ravine, which would thus form a kind of moat between him and the king's soldiers. He also ordered about thirty horsemen to make a great round, thus reaching unseen a little wood about two hundred yards to his left, where they could conceal themselves, and lastly he sent to a point on the right sixty foot soldiers chosen from his best marksmen, whom he ordered not to fire until the royal forces were engaged in the struggle with him. Monsieur de la Jonquière, having approached to within a certain distance, halted and sent one of his lieutenants named de saint chatte to make a reconnaissance, which he did, advancing beyond the men in ambush who gave no sign of their existence, while the officer quietly examined the ground. But saint chatte was an old soldier of fortune, and not easily taken in, so on his return, while explaining the plan of the ground chosen by Cavalier for the disposition of his troops to Monsieur Le Jonquier, he added that he should be very much astonished 
if the young commissard had not employed the little wood on his left and the lie of the ground on his right as cover for soldiers in ambush but monsieur de la jonquiere returned that the only thing of importance was to know the position of the principal body of troops in order to attack it at once saint chatte told him that the principal body was that which was before his eyes and that on this subject there could be no mistake for he had approached near enough to recognize cavalier himself in the front rank this was enough for monsieur de la jonquiere he put himself at the head of his men and rode straight to the ravine beyond which cavalier and his comrades awaited him in order of battle having got within a pistol shot monsieur de la jonquiere gave the order to fire but he was so near that cavalier heard the words and saw the motion made by the men as they made reply he therefore gave a rapid sign to his men who threw themselves on their faces as did their leader and the bullets passed over them without doing any harm Monsieurs de la jonquiere who believed them all dead was astonished when cavalier and his commissards rose up and rushed upon the royal troops advancing to the sound of a psalm at a distance of ten paces they fired and then charged the enemy at the point of the bayonet at this moment the sixty men in ambush to the right opened fire while the thirty horsemen to the left uttering loud shouts charged at the gallop hearing this noise and seeing death approaching them in three different directions the royals believed themselves surrounded and did not attempt to make a stand the men throwing away their weapons took to their heels the officers alone and a few dragoons whom they had succeeded in rallying making a desperate resistance cavalier was riding over the field of battle sabring all the fugitives whom he met when he caught sight of a group composed of ten naval officers standing close together and back to back spontoon in hand facing the commissards who surrounded them he spurred up to them passing through the ranks of his soldiers and not pausing till he was within fifteen paces of them although they raised their weapons to fire then making a sign with his hand that he wished to speak with them he said gentlemen surrender i shall give quarter and in return for the ten lives i now spare you will ask that my father who is in prison at nimes be released for sole answer one of the officers fired and wounded the young chief's horse in the head cavalier drew a pistol from his belt took aim at the officer and killed him then turning again to the others he asked gentlemen are you as obstinate as your comrade or do you accept my offer a second shot was the reply and a bullet grazed his shoulder seeing that no other answer was to be hoped for cavalier turned to his soldiers do your duty said he and withdrew to avoid seeing the massacre the nine officers were shot monsieur de la jonquiere who had received a slight wound in the cheek abandoned his horse in order to climb over a wall on the other side he made a dragoon dismount and give him his horse on which he crossed the river gardon leaving behind him on the battlefield twenty-five officers and six hundred soldiers killed the defeat was doubly disastrous to the royal cause depriving it of the flower of its officers almost all of those who fell belonging to the noblest families of france and also because the commissards gained what they so badly needed muskets swords and bayonets in great quantities as well as eighty horses these latter enabling cavalier to complete the organization of a magnificent troop of cavalry the recall of the marechal de montreval was the consequence of this defeat and monsieur de villiers as he had anticipated was appointed in his place 
but before giving up his governorship montreval resolved to efface the memory of the check which his lieutenant's foolhardiness had caused but for which according to the rules of war the general had to pay the penalty his plan was by spreading false rumours and making feigned marches to draw the commissards into a trap in which they in their turn would be caught this was the less difficult to accomplish as their latest victory had made cavalier overconfident both in himself and his men in fact since the incident connected with the naval officers the troops of cavalier had increased enormously in numbers every one desiring to serve under so brave a chief as that he had now under him over one thousand infantry and two hundred cavalry they were furnished besides just like regular troops with a bugler for the cavalry and eight drums and a fife for the infantry the marechal felt sure that his departure would be the signal for some expedition into the level country under cavalier so it was given out that he had left for montpellier and had sent forward some of his baggage wagons to that place on april fifteenth he was informed that cavalier deceived by the false news had set out on the sixteenth of april intending to pass the night at caverac a small town about a league from nimes that he might be ready next day to make a descent on la venage this news was brought to monsieur de montreval by a village priest called Ferien, who had in his pay vigilant and faithful spies in whom he had every confidence montreval accordingly ordered the commandant of lunel monsieur de granval to set out the next day very early in the morning with the charolais regiment and five companies of the femarcon and saint cernan dragoons and to repair to the heights of boissiere where instructions would await him sandricourt governor of nimes was at the same time directed to withdraw as many men as possible from the garrison both swiss and dragoons and send them by night towards saint combe and clarensac lastly he himself set out as he had said but instead of going on to montpellier he stopped at Sommier, whence he could observe the movements of cavalier cavalier as monsieur de montreval already knew was to sleep on the fifteenth at caveyrac on this day cavalier reached the turning point in his magnificent career as he entered the town with his soldiers drums beating and flags flying he was at the zenith of his power he rode the splendid horse monsieur de la jonquiere had abandoned in his flight behind him serving as page rode his young brother aged ten followed by four grooms he was preceded by twelve guards dressed in red and as his colleague roland had taken the title of comte he allowed himself to be called duke of the Cévennes. at his approach half of the garrison which was commanded by monsieur de Mayon, took possession of the church and half of the citadel but as cavalier was more bent on obtaining food and rest for his soldiers than of disturbing the town he billeted his men on the townspeople and placed sentinels at the church and fortress who exchanged shots all the night through with the royal troops the next morning having destroyed the fortifications he marched out of the town again drums beating and flags flying as before when almost in sight of nimes he made his troops which had never before been so numerous or so brilliant perform a great many evolutions and then continued his way towards nagues monsieur de montrevel received a report at nine o'clock in the morning of the direction cavalier and his troops had taken and immediately left Sommier, followed by six companies of Fimarcon dragoons, one hundred Irish freelances, 
300 rank and file of the Hainault Regiment, and one company each of the Soissonnais, Charolais, and Menon Regiments, forming in all a corps over 900 strong. They took the direction of Vernage, above Clarensac, but suddenly hearing the rattle of musketry behind them, they wheeled and made for Langlade. They found that Granval had already encountered the commissards. These, being fatigued, had withdrawn into a hollow between Boissiere and the windmill at Langlade in order to rest. The infantry lay down, their arms beside them. The cavalry placed themselves at the feet of their horses, the bridle on arm. Cavalier himself, Cavalier, the indefatigable, broken by the fatigues of the preceding days, had fallen asleep with his young brother watching beside him. Suddenly he felt himself shaken by the arm, and rousing up, he heard on all sides cries of kill, kill, and to arms, to arms. Granval and his men, who had been sent to find out where the commissards were, had suddenly come upon them. The infantry formed, the cavalry sprang up to their saddles, Cavalier leaped on his horse, and drawing his sword at his soldiers as usual against the dragoons, and these, as was also usual, ran away, leaving twelve of their number dead on the field. The commissard cavalry soon gave up the pursuit, as they found themselves widely separated from the infantry and from their leader. For Cavalier had been unable to keep up with them, his horse having received a bullet through its neck. Still, they followed the flying dragoons for a good hour, from time to time a wounded dragoon falling from his horse, till at last the commissard cavalry found itself confronted by the Charolais regiment, drawn up in battle array, and behind them the royal dragoons who had taken refuge there and were reforming. Carried on by the rapidity of their course, the commissards could not pull up till they were within a hundred yards of the enemy. They fired once, killing several, then turned round and retreated. When a third of the way back had been covered, they met their chief, who had found a fresh horse by the wayside standing beside its dead master. He arrived at full gallop as he was anxious to unite his cavalry and infantry at once, as he had seen the forces of the Marechal advancing, who, as we have already said, had turned in the direction of the firing. Hardly had Cavalier effected the desired junction of his forces than he perceived that his retreat was cut off. He had the royal troops both before and behind him. The young chief saw that a desperate dash to right or left was all that remained to him, and not knowing this country as well as the Cévennes, he asked a peasant the way from Sudorg to Naga, that being the only one by which he could escape. There was no time to inquire whether the peasant was Catholic or Protestant. He could only trust to chance and follow the road indicated. But a few yards from the spot where the road from Dudorg to Nag joins the road to Nîmes, he found himself in face of Marechal Montrevel's troops under the command of Menon. However, as they hardly outnumbered the commissards, these did not stop to look for another route, but bending forward in their saddles, they dashed through the lines at full gallop, taking the direction of Naga, hoping to reach the plain round Calvisson. But the village, the approaches, the issues were all occupied by royal troops, and at the same time Granval and the Marechal joined forces while Menon collected his men together and pushed forward. Cavalier was completely surrounded. He gave the situation a comprehensive glance. His foes were five to one. Rising in his stirrups, so that he could see over every head, Cavalier shouted so loud that not only his own men heard, but also those of the enemy. 
my children if our hearts fail us now we shall be taken and broken on the wheel there is only one means of safety we must cut our way at full gallop through these people follow me and keep close order so speaking he dashed on the nearest group followed by all his men who formed a compact mass round which the three corps of royal troops closed then there was everywhere a hand-to-hand battle there was no time to load or fire swords flashed and fell bayonets stabbed the royals and the commissards took each other by the throat and hair for an hour this demoniac fight lasted during which cavalier lost five hundred men and slew a thousand of the enemy at last he won through followed by about two hundred of his troops and drew a long breath but finding himself in the centre of a large circle of soldiers he made for a bridge where alone it seemed possible to break through it being only guarded by a hundred dragoons he divided his men into two divisions one to force the bridge the other to cover the retreat then he faced his foes like a wild boar driven to bay suddenly loud shouts behind him announced that the bridge was forced but the commissards instead of keeping the passage open for their leader scattered over the plain and sought safety in flight but a child threw himself before them pistol in hand it was cavalier's young brother mounted on one of the small wild horses of camargue of that arab breed which was introduced to languedoc by the moors from spain carrying a sword and carbine proportioned to his size the boy addressed the flying men where are you going he cried instead of running away like cowards line the river banks and oppose the enemy to facilitate my brother's escape ashamed of having deserted such reproaches the commissars stopped rallied lined the banks of the river and by keeping up a steady fire covered cavalier's retreat who crossed without having received a single wound though his horse was riddled with bullets and he had been forced to change his sword three times still the combat raged but gradually cavalier managed to retreat a plain cut by trenches the falling darkness a wood which afforded cover all combined to help him at last still his rear guard harassed by the enemy dotted the ground it passed over with its dead until at last both victors and vanquished were swallowed up by the night the fight had lasted ten hours cavalier had lost more than five hundred men and the royals about a thousand cavalier says monsieur de villiers in his memoirs acted on this day in a way which astonished everyone for who could help being astonished to see a nobody inexperienced in the art of warfare bear himself in such difficult and trying circumstances like some great general at one period of the day he was followed everywhere by a dragoon cavalier shot at him and killed his horse the dragoon returned the shot but missed cavalier had two horses killed under him the first time he caught a dragoon's horse the second time he made one of his own men dismount and go on foot monsieur de montrevel also showed himself to be a gallant soldier wherever there was danger there was he encouraging officers and soldiers by his example one irish captain was killed at his side another fatally wounded and a third slightly hurt granval on his part had performed miracles his horse was shot under him and monsieur de montrevel replaced it by one of great value on which he joined in the pursuit of the camisade after this affair monsieur de montrevel gave up his place to monsieur de villers leaving word for cavalier that it was thus he took leave of his friends although cavalier came out of this battle with honour 
compelling even his enemies to regard him as a man worthy of their steel, it had nevertheless destroyed the best part of his hopes. He made a halt near Pyridon to gather together the remnant of his troops, and truly it was but a remnant which remained. Of those who came back, the greater number were without weapons, for they had thrown them away in their flight. Many were incapacitated for service by their wounds, and lastly the cavalry could hardly be said to exist any longer, as the few men who survived had been obliged to abandon their horses in order to get across the high ditches, which were their only cover from the dragoons during the flight. Meantime the royalists were very active, and Cavalier felt that it would be imprudent to remain long at Pierredon. So setting out during the night and crossing the Gardon, he buried himself in the forest of Huset, whither he hoped his enemies would not venture to follow him, and in fact the first two days were quiet, and his troops benefited greatly by the rest, especially as they were able to draw stores of all kind, wheat, hay, arms, and ammunition, from an immense cave which the commissards had used for a long time as a magazine and arsenal. Cavalier now also employed it as a hospital, and had the wounded carried there that their wounds might receive attention. Unfortunately, Cavalier was soon obliged to quit the forest in spite of his hopes of being left in peace, for one day on his way back from a visit to the wounded in the cave, whose existence was a secret, he came across a hundred Michelet, who had penetrated thus far and who would have taken him prisoner if he had not, with his accustomed presence of mind and courage, sprung from a rock twenty feet high. The Michelet fired at him, but no bullet reached him. Cavalier rejoined his troops, but fearing to attract the rest of the royalists to the place, retreated to some distance from the cave as it was of the utmost importance that it should not be discovered, since it contained all his resources. Cavalier had now reached one of those moments when fortune, tired of conferring favors, turns her back on her favorite. The royalists had often noticed an old woman from the village of Haize, going towards the forest, sometimes carrying a basket in her hand, sometimes with a hamper on her head, and it occurred to them that she was supplying the hidden commissards with provisions. She was arrested and brought before General Hollande, who began his examination by threatening that he would have her hanged if she did not at once declare the object of her frequent journeys to the forest without reserve. At first she made use of all kinds of pretexts, which only strengthened the suspicions of Lalande, who, ceasing his questions, ordered her to be taken to the gallows and hanged. The old woman walked to the place of execution with such firm step that the general began to think he would get no information from her, but at the foot of the ladder her courage failed. She asked to be taken back before the general, and having been promised her life, she revealed everything. End of chapter 3, section 1 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia